This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your weekly pop culture bugle. I'm Sean Pattenden. And I'm Alex Andreu. This week we won't be calling anything average. We are absolutely thrilled to be joined by singer, songwriter, actor, author, podcaster and LGBTQ plus activist, I'm going to need a tea break, <laughs> the legendary Will Young. And Reel Around the Fontaines. We listen to Skinty Fear, the third album from Feisty Dubliners, Fontaines DC. Are they set to go stratospheric? We also settled down to watch Raw, the brand new series on Apple TV Plus featuring female-led stories, Hurrah, starring Cynthia Erivo, Nicole Kidman, Merritt Weaver, Alison Brie and more. And we also have Catherine Tate's Hard Sell on Netflix. All this, plus top music recommendations and bad, bad puns on today's Culture Bunker. (laughs) Welcome to the Culture Bunker. Let's say hello to our first guest. Will Young barely needs an introduction. He's a modern-day miracle, a veritable (laughs) renaissance man, smashing stereotypes at every opportunity. From hugely successful singer to star of the stage, author of not one but three books, podcast host, dog lover, and more. Is there anything Will Young can't do? Maybe you'll answer that for us (laughs) in a minute. Fantastic to have you on, Will. How are you and where are you? How am I? I'm, I'm a bit tired because I did a very early morning start to avoid the traffic to get to Cornwall. I'm in uh, my family's home in Cornwall. Apologies if there will be dogs barking, but there's six running around the place, but not in, not in this room. 2022 is a pretty packed year for you. Uh, There's a new track released today, which will go with your 20 Years Hits album. Later in the year, there's a grand tour to celebrate 20 years. How does 20 Years Later feel? Are there bits of it that are just a blur? It kind of depends on the day, really. I mean, yeah. i tell you what's been really nice is I went up into the attic because I'm so old, I remember photo shoots when you do Polaroids. And I'm so pleased, by the way, that I was <laughs> alive during that time because I've got all these wonderful Polaroids from all these shoots that I've done. So I went through all the sort of memorabilia and just memories. And that's really fun because I look back, we can be very quick or I can be very quick to discount all the things that I've done because it can be a sort of human um nature to sort of want to just keep on going keep on going it's just been lovely to look at all the things i've done all the photo shoots i've done all the videos you know 
the acting job. So it's just, so that's lovely. And then I feel like I've done a good, fun, f- packed 20 years. Other days, I think, you've done nothing, Will. <laughs> <laughs> well, some days we do nothing. You also present your own podcast, The Wellbeing Lab. It's very frank. I, I listened to a few episodes. Topics include sex addiction, body dysmorphia, shopping addiction, eating disorders. What's been the hardest subject to tackle so far? Uh, That's a great question. It's very frank and not very trendy. I did a very successful podcast called Homo Sapiens, and I stopped enjoying it, so I, I left. And that still goes on with Chris Sweeney. But one of the things that stopped me enjoying it was this sort of constantly trying to book a famous guest. And I was like, Mm. I just love normal people. And quite a lot of famous people, maybe myself included, are rather dull. So, (laughs) you know, I just like talking to normal people. So with this one, I I talk really pretty much exclusively to just professionals. Um, The hardest one for me to do hasn't aired yet, and that is on depersonalisation, because I had depersonalisation really badly so that was slightly triggering for me depersonalization is a symptom of anxiety um but also a state in its own right where you Mm. don't recognize your face in the mirror you don't recognize people you don't have any emotional context there's other disassociative disorders as well but that was so difficult for me and i can still get it sometimes so that was a hard one but i'm pretty good at looking after myself and i wanted to pick really you know, topics that people don't talk about, like sex addiction, body dysmorphia, you know, they're not necessarily trendy topics. But I'm really pleased with it, actually. Amazing people I get to speak to. Do you like asking the questions more than being interviewed? I think I do. I mean, my kind of ego side probably loves being interviewed. I think I am genuinely interested in people. So that's definitely something that I've honed over the last few years. And, you know, I think everyone's got a story to tell. Everyone. Mm. In fact, I think I have a saying, which is everyday heroes, which is not the people that we like to lord in our society, but actually the people that you pass on the street. And I love hearing their stories. We'll chat a lot more in a minute. Let's meet our other guest first. Yes, let's. Craig McLean is a freelance writer who works for The Telegraph, Evening Standard, Times and Observer, I believe. He's also consultant editor to a load of young people at The Face. <laughs> Hello, Greg. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Sean. How are you? How are the youngsters, is what I want to ask. They're, they're, they're talking a different language, I hear. From the youngsters are, are, they are talking a different language. Goblin energy is the latest mm. thing we've been mm-hmm. talking about. Yes, I've heard. I mm. worked at The Face in the distant 90s, so I am allegedly there to impart some old magazine <laughs> wisdom. I find that they are much more full of wisdom than I am. The young people, they're, they're humans 2.0, they're better than us. Um, you recently spoke to Glyn Johns. He's not young, but I want you to tell our listeners, if they haven't heard of him, who is he? Why should more of us know his name? If you had the pleasure and uh, perseverance to sit through all eight hours of Peter Jackson's Get Back Beatles doc, mm-hmm. Glyn Johns was the <laughs> rock star in the room. Mm-hmm. He was the one wearing the... Not sne- the other four, then. Not the other right. four dads. He was he was the guy in the smelly goatskin coat, the purple sunglasses indoors permanently, and the uh, snakeskin leather jacket that mm. Keith Richards gave to him in a rare fit of generosity <laughs> in a Paris hotel room mm-hmm. because it didn't fit Keith. <laughs> 
Uh, Glenn is the possibly the most legendary and maybe at the same time unsung British production hero. You name your landmark late sixties, early seventies mm-hmm. British rock album. He was at the knobs. Mm-hmm. So and he, he doesn't did, get name checked. Does no, he, he doesn't. Often. He did sixteen more or less consecutive Rolling Stones albums and is still alive with his liver intact. Uh, he did. He was the pretty much the, the producer's de facto Beatle at the end of the day. Uh, George Martin was not around. Mm. Uh, famously, Phil Spector took his tapes for Let It Be and ruined them. <laughs> and that uh, Glyn Johns version only came out, I think, last year. So he is this uh, shaggy-jacketed Zelig figure yeah. in British rock. And he is still going strong, turned 80, dresses like your golfing granddad now. But uh, <laughs> is, right, a, is a wonderful, That's cool. wonderful man. You also got a lift in his Bentley. What did it smell like? His Bentley smells of success. Ah, and the number, <laughs> the number plate is LP1. As it would be. Classic. I also want to quickly mention Kathy Valentine from the Go-Go's, the LA punks of yore. You spoke to her about her memoir, and apparently this memoir is amazing. I haven't read it yet. What's in it? Why so, should we buy it? Kathy Valentine, arguably the third most famous person in the Go-Go's, mm-hmm. uh, but she has written a blockbuster memoir. The, the interesting stuff is the pre-Go-Go stuff. Right. Kathy's mum was an English woman who met a, an American service... Shirley Valentine. Kind of, yeah. Met yeah. an American <laughs> serviceman in London, moved to Texas, parents pro- promptly split up, and then... Kathy was basically unmothered by her mother and was left to her own devices to such an extent that she'd had drug, sex and abortion by the time she was 12. Okay, Jules are on the floor here. Okay, and only later did she join a punk band. So she was a punk, a pre-teen punk, wow. in the original American sense of the phrase punk. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she writes about this stuff brilliantly and honestly and trenchantly. The go-go stuff is arguably the least, not the least interesting, but it's the tamer of it's the, the it's the tamer tale. of the tales. Apart wow. from the time when they uh, snort Rod Stewart under the table at Rock and Rio. Now, before we move on, a reminder, you can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without adverts when you support The Bunker on Patreon. That means daily episodes in politics, science, pop culture and much more, plus all manner of exciting merchandise thingies. Just search <laughs> Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. And before we talk to Will, here's a bit of his new single. Full track is on the playlist, of course. Everyone goes a bit housey eventually. It's the natural order of things. Here's Will with Why Does It Hurt? You think your dog is judging you. Are you fucking <laughs> insane? Those are the soothing words of Will Young's therapist, as shared by Will in his latest book, Be Yourself and Happier. Will, I want to start from that more recent part of the story, if I may. In the book, you talk in excruciating detail about your mental breakdown about 10 years ago, and you share some of the wisdom you squeezed out of it and the advice that helped you through. Why was it important to you to write about it? Uh, yeah, it was a m- mental and physical breakdown. Um, 
I think it was a natural progression for me when I learned so much new information that I have always have then wanted to share it. And so I've been talking about mental health for about eight years now. And this guide I started when I was still in treatment, I think, about six years ago. And I recognised that I was very fortunate and had the funds to get a lot of therapy. As I mentor people now and sort of connect them with people and through my interviews, you know, I know that, in my opinion, I believe mental health, access to mental health therapy is in a dire, dire state in this country. So I know how lucky I am. And so I wanted to put that into a book and everything I've learned. Also, sometimes, Mm. you know, you read, I read one book on shame, let's say, and I glean one thing and I think, well, let's put that in the book. You talk in the book about how you dislike arguments. You just, confrontation is not for you. You will have heated discussions, but you don't want to argue. Are you on social media? No. (laughs) How do you avoid arguments while engaging with people? I don't engage with people. (laughs) (laughs) Top tip. Okay, so let's say you want to engage with people or you have to engage with people for work. How do you take the heat out of those conversations? I tell you, the thing is, I want to engage in a space that I think is appropriate and most importantly safe. So I always say I've got a really clever way of not being killed by a shark is I just don't go in the water, you know, and it's the same on social media. And actually, um, Camilla Cabello was on radio earlier and she, she was saying the same thing. It was so nice to hear someone. She's clearly done a lot of work on her mental health. She doesn't do it either. So I use it as a tool and hopefully I give people types of access that is nice for social media, but I have no engagement with people on social media. I have my tiny little Instagram where I follow eight people and then I have my work Instagram. And I don't even know how to go on Twitter because I don't know my password. You see, I feel guilty when I do that. Um, so when I use it just to transmit information about a bit of work that I have coming up or a podcast that's out, I feel guilty. I feel like I'm being hoity-toity and standing above people and just being a transmitter rather than a receiver. How do you get out of that? Well, that's. I think that's interesting, you know, and, and without sounding too therapy speak, you know, I completely validate that. I understand why you would feel that. Um, I just... It's just not for me. And I think it is quite clear that social media in many ways has become now a selling tool. I think everyone's aware of that. You can hide it as much as you want by going, hey, guys, look at me and my, you know, it's like, it's bullshit. You basically want people to buy the album or buy, you know what I mean? So I think there's still a way of doing it that makes it personable. But I think you have a very clear choice. My choice is that I'm just not that type of person. It just wouldn't be truthful if I was pretending to be that kind of person, you know. I love it. I, I, I have a feeling this will turn into a long therapy session between me and Will. Your book is subtitled The A to Z of Wellbeing. And while I would encourage everyone to buy the book, um, it's the nature of these interviews that I must press you on, like, one favourite bit of advice. Oh, easy. Well, 
you know, you mentioned my my, my, my therapist, Lois Evans, very strong New York Jewish lady, sadly no longer with us, and did say to me, you think your dog is judging you, you fucking mad. She also said to me, if I was your boyfriend, I'd dump you. She's (laughs) gave me a piece of advice. Don't expect from people what they're not capable or willing of giving. So that's kind of my number one thing. That is great advice. Your sound, to my ears, these things are subjective, of course, but your sound keeps changing from album to album. It feels like a conscious effort to record the songs you want to rather than the ones that are expected of you on the basis of the previous albums, if that makes sense. And this seems to me a pattern ever since your second or third album. Has that been difficult at times? Do you have like dark moments when you think, if I'd played along, I'd be a gazillionaire by now, if I'd yes. just written the the stuff that people <laughs> wanted? Yes, of course. <laughs> I just continue to do key changes in songs. <laughs> <laughs> and air grabs in the video and ka-ching, innit? Yes, and air grabs. <laughs> but I think, um, I just don't think I would have been very happy. Yeah, I have a love-hate relationship with music, but maybe like lots of people do, it's, it's that balance of art and commerce, I suppose. But I, I'm quite excited where I'm at at the moment for the next record. I mean, these two songs I put out, for the hits, you know, one was a song that, that I wrote as a pitch to Dua Lipa because I'm a songwriter as well. And then I thought, oh, I quite like this. Um, <laughs> I'll keep it. And another one was from, from ages ago. But then the next record's completely different again. Um, mm. So I feel like I'm in quite a fun place for songwriting. I do find it very frustrating. I, I'm enjoying songwriting now, but for many years I've absolutely detested it. I find it so stressful. Yeah. So having said all that, the the last album, although titled Crying on the Bathroom Floor, has quite an upbeat melodic pop sound to it, I thought. Was that a return to those principles or was it a sort of nostalgic review? It felt like the the la- it felt like a mature person writing about their youth in many ways. Well, I mean that album the first album I did with Richard X was about 12 years ago. And that was a sort of mid-tempo electronica album. And sort of around that time, it, pop hadn't moved so much into that. There was a lot of dance, but it hadn't really moved so much into that yet. And the last record is a covers record of women artists. So, and I wanted to do it with Richard because I knew he'd do a brilliant job. And I have to say, I think his production is extraordinary, actually. He is a bit of an unsung hero, I think. And I'm really pleased with that and I wanted to choose artists who I thought were interesting interesting so slightly sort of left field pop artists Mm. people from Moona to um Bat for Lashes interesting people but you know people come up to me and they do think they're my songs and I don't put them right I say yeah they are (laughs) (laughs) cheeky We've talked 20 years, and it is indeed two decades. You won the first series of Pop Idol in 2002. What would you tell your 2002 self now? I don't think there's much to sort of say, because you just got to get on and learn the stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing sort of prosaic I can think of, because I wouldn't listen to me. I'd be like, yeah, whatever. And then I'd have to learn the last, you know, be like, don't do this. Well, yeah, I'm going to do it, because otherwise, how do I learn? So there's not much that I would learn. I think everything's happened the way it was meant to happen. And I include the brilliant moments in that from 
doing incredible things creatively to the really awful, painful moments. I just think life, that's the way life is. There's, not, there's nothing I would do differently, I don't think. No. You seem quite strong-minded for this, from the start because I remember interviews where you talked about you would get the bus to wherever you were going to because you realised that you would be paying for the elaborate cab. So why just not just spend one fifty on the bus or a pound <laughs> as it used to be? Uh, no, they sent, well, once they sent me, they tried to get me to move out of the flat that I was living in, which is really odd. So it's like I'm living in a the flat. They tried, and I remember they sent me my second video, great video director called Bailey Walsh. And they sent this sort of chauffeur-driven car, and it was there all day. We were talking like so many hours. And I said, why is the car staying there? And I said, who's paying for it? And they said, you are. And that was like a three, that was 3,000 pounds. And I said, well, send it back. This is ridiculous. <laughs> you know, so it's amazing how happy people are to spend your money. <laughs> That's a wonderful quote. Do you ever dream about um, Pop Idol? Do you dream about the final and who's going to win? Do you get anxiety from all that time ago? Or have you no, processed it? No, um, I loved it. Because I was so repressed as a singer. Mm-hmm. I used to sing in car parks, you know, because at university, because it was great reverb. But I had no <laughs> technical, I had no microphone, you know, I didn't have any of that. Mm. Um, it was less easy then, maybe. So I got to sing on a microphone with reverb. I mean, it was literally as kind of innocent as that. So I was loving it. I was absolutely loving it. And I think we're very lucky, though, because that show was quite innocent in its format and nothing had come before it. So there were no sharks around going, we can make loads of money. They didn't know they were going to make loads of money. That's that. true. That's yeah, absolutely Yeah, I agree. True. I think, yeah, I think you lucked out on it being the it first. Was, it was like the first series of Big Brother mm. where no one knew that loads of people were watching them. And <laughs> exactly. Like... It's a very good point. A couple of years ago, Will, you spoke to Newsnight, um, very frankly, about coming out. And I think it's easy to forget 20 years on that this was a pretty huge thing at the time. You know, for me as a gay man, it was a pretty big milestone to have someone in that kind of popular contest environment suddenly standing out and proud. Um, Do you think it's a very different environment 20 years on? Oh, yeah, really different. Yeah, I have to sort of remind myself. It's amazing what I put up with as a gay man but there was no legal recompense. There was no mm. safety. So I would just put up with people writing stuff, saying stuff, be it in the media, in record companies, the whole shebang, you know. It was just the norm, you, you know. I was just got used to it. That's what happens if you're a gay man. So it's lovely that it's not like that now. But I guess looking back on it, it probably was. Well, was it difficult? No, because I just thought, well, that's the way it is. But, na- you know, so I'm not angry about it because I'm looking at it from a different perspective now. Yeah. But it was dangerous at times for me. Definitely. Mm. I got run, you know, gangs of people. I got people with knives running, running after me and my boyfriend once. You know, it was not safe to be an openly gay man. That's for sure. We talked about your book a bit, and um, I'm go- I have read all of it. I read all of it yesterday. It's really lovely. I must say, I'm, I'm going to find my local shaman. I don't know how you find them, but I want one now. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> I need a shaman as well. It's really good. There's great advice. You've got good boundaries, Will. You and your neighbours. 
Oh, I love that. Neighbours do crop up quite a lot in it. Um, but what is writing like? Are you the sort of person that can concentrate for long periods of time? Are you just dribs and drabs? I do dribs and drabs. People think I'm always really busy, but I'm not, actually. I do, <laughs> I do little and often. Um, mm. So I can get a sort of quick burst done in a day. I mean, this was different to writing the book on gay shame, and it's right. To, it's different to writing you know, novels and things like that. I find the subject so fascinating. So I, I do enjoy writing about it. But yeah, no, I'm very good at boundaries. Oh, yeah. yeah. I was taking tips from it. I mean, there's some stuff that you think, well, I'll write that down too. When your neighbour comes and says, we have a problem with, and I think it's a pipe. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's something like a pipe. Yeah. Yeah. No, we don't have a problem. You have a problem with the pipe. It's like, yes. <laughs> I actually didn't even say you. No, I use the word I. I ask people to talk from the I position. See, I've misquoted you already because my boundaries are so shit. Yeah, because I had a hardcore therapist. Yeah. I learned it. And I am really hardcore about it. And and also, I, you know, it's made my life a lot happier because, it, it you know, I used to get, I'm not doing woe as me, but, you know, people would be really unpleasant. It was a difficult being an openly gay man 20 years ago. People would really come at me. And through the therapy and all these lessons, I won't stand for it. I just won't stand for it. So it's been amazing. I mean, it's lit, boundaries have literally changed my life. What's the last record you bought? Oh, Peter Gabriel. So, oh, okay. I buy music. I don't stream it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I bought it on Apple because I wanted it on my phone. Uh, I heard it on the radio and I thought, Red Rain, I heard. And I thought, oh, I haven't heard that song for ages. Such a good album. Mm. Yeah, mm. good popping and avant-garde mm-hmm. mix. Right, we ask our guests to bring in a current favourite tune each week in order to keep in touch with the kids. And indeed, Craig McLean, you sit near them in an office. Tell us, what are the kids listening to? Is this reflected in your choice? Possibly. I went. I had the pleasure and privilege of going to Norwich uh, earlier this year to interview Let's Eat Grandma, Jenny and Rosa, who are still mm. only 22 and 23, I believe. Their fantastic third album, Two Ribbons, is out later this month. Mm-hmm. The opening track is Happy New Year. Uh, and in that opening track, they grasp the thistle of their fractious or fractured relationship over the course of the last record. Uh, this, but the song has actually got literal and figurative fireworks in it. Oh, okay. It's the sound of these two young women uh, coming back together, entwining again, hence the title, Two Ribbons, and acknowledging that their friendship is the thing that both fires and inspires them and makes their band. And it's a wonderful record. It also deals with uh, the loss of one of their boyfriends. Uh, he died, uh, sadly, from a rare form of cancer. Um, so there's a lot in this record, but it's never maudlin, never woe is me, and is always elevational. Wonderful. OK, well, let's give it a listen. Happy New Year. Let's eat Grandma. Oh, there's no one else who guessed me quite like you.
woman who ate photographs, the woman who disappeared, the woman who was kept on the shelf. Those are just some of the intriguing titles of Apple TV's new feminist scream of a series, Raw. Based on anonymous Cecilia Hearn's book of short stories, it stars such luminaries as Alison Breege and in Neighbours, Betty Gilpin, Nicole Kidman and Cynthia Erivo. Let's get a flavour. You want to take revenge like a man, you got to dress like one. Or not take revenge is the other option. I met someone. Oh my God. Is he married? No. Do you want dessert? I will do bedtime. That's a risky move. Promising bedtime. I really don't know how you ladies do it. Witchcraft, mainly. Oh, if I am a ghost, why am I still getting cramps? Will the series was trailed as a sort of feminist twilight zone almost. Is it much more than that or is it much less than that? Oh, I think it's more than that. I mean, I'm a feminist. I studied women's studies at university and I absolutely delighted in it. When it first started, the first episode, I was thinking, oh, I don't know if I'm going to like it. And then suddenly I got it. And I felt like it was like watching a series of amazing plays. Mm. And also what I loved particularly, I'm so pleased I enjoyed it. There's a recurring theme of of being seen or not being seen. You know, so there is this, it's not just like a loose, like, yeah, we need to talk about feminism and, you know, let's be reactive to women and put women at the front. No, no, it's not that at all. It is dark, curious, funny, you know, the woman's mm. put on, on a shelf and yeah. watched by her husband. And then you slowly watch her husband lose, losing, <laughs> you know. Well, but, but look, at the same time, some of the metaphors are a little bit on the nose. You know, the trophy wife that actually lives on a huge mantelpiece. Is that because it's pitched low, do you think? Or is it because it's pitched... I mean, it felt to me like like it was pitched as a fairy tale, almost. I know what you mean, actually. That's really interesting. I know exactly what you mean. There is a sort of storyteller element to it, actually, that brilliant series. Like there's that? a grandmother narrating all these yeah. stories to a yes. granddaughter. For me, the overall effect of it, when I thought of the whole thing as a whole, with each episode... Really worked. I mean, you know, the episode with the baby, the teeth marks, you know, I can't remember what the title of that one was. I mean, that was astonishing. I I, I just, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and I wasn't Mm. expecting to, but I did really Mm. enjoy it. Mm. Sean, often the issue with anthologies is that they do not maintain a sort of consistent quality or sustained interest. You basically have your favourite episode and your less favourite episodes. Did you feel like you were jumping from one story to the next? Or did you, like Will, sense a strong through narrative that sort of kept you going? Um, I would say the latter. I mean, obviously, as you say, based on the Cecilia Ahern book. So it has an authorial core. It is her voice that they're then Mm. using and taking. Mm. And it's the same scriptwriters as well, it seems to be, on those episodes. And I watched four 
two. Um, so I think I've got four more to go. Again, I wasn't expecting that much, but I thought it was fantastic. And it is very much what theatre does usually, is takes those surreal and metaphorical elements and will stage them so you will literally see a shelf and someone sitting on it. And in that sense, yeah. they've taken a lot of Beckett and Cecilia Hearn is Irish. And I thought that sense is really strong, really loved it. It's The shelf one is a, is a good example because it's the opposite of Happy Days with Billy Whitelaw in the sand. She is elevated, but mm, she is still mm. captured. It's the gilded cage. And I think it was extraordinarily the bite mark one that Will did just mention about, and that's mm. about, we talked about having it all. That is about having it all when you are a young mother of, and you have to express milk in the cupboard at work. Um, and yet you're supposed to be high flying. You're supposed to go on work events and work trips out. You, how can you be pulled in all those directions? And that is the, the metaphor of that is so strong in that it's visceral yeah. and it's skin and something eaten away with you, away at you because this could fall so badly. I mean, this could really not work with too many cooks spoiling the broth in something that is going to be yeah, so yeah, yeah. glossy and apple produced and have to appeal to such a mass audience. But I was really surprised and really enjoyed it. The invisibility one that starts is also really good. I just thought absolutely on the nose, I, pitch I perfect. I have to say, I'm trying to play devil's advocate. <laughs> you can't because you liked it, didn't you, I bet. loved Yay. it. <laughs> so it's, it's, really, it's really difficult. And one of the things that really delighted me was this re-emergence of real absurdist um, yeah. theatre, yes. real magical realism. There, you know, uh, you say Beckett. I recognised Witold Gombrowicz oh, okay. in there. He's considered yeah. the grandfather of the yeah. absurd. I did a play called Ivona, Princess of Burgundia, which is all about this, the prince marrying a girl so ugly that she causes everything in court to fall apart. So they all... Uh, start planning to assassinate her. And it feels like that kind of dark fairy tale. It feels like it leads you into a very uncomfortable attic at times where everything seems to be moving and the light has a quality of its own. And then it throws you some absolute curveballs, like suddenly a big musical sequence with a massive dance routine on the beach, which is just a delight. Um, Craig... Did watching the series make you feel uncomfortable as a man? In a good way, I mean. I, I recognize behaviors I can sometimes fall into and had this parallel, oh shit, I do this monologue going on in my head. I didn't feel uncomfortable as a man. I felt bored as a human. Uh, <laughs> Dissenting voice alert. To me, this wasn't I so should much... have come to you earlier. <laughs> to me, this wasn't so much roar as squeak. You know, this idea oh. that it's magical realism or the Twilight Zone, it was more like Doctor Who meets loose women. It was so basic. <laughs> the metaphors were so lumpen. You know, she's so invisible, someone sits on her. She's so you know, uh, resentful, resented by her children that she's got bite marks on her. I just thought it was really underserving uh, women and these these issues with something that was just really simplistic and reductive. And uh, I have to say, my wife agreed. This wasn't just okay. me saying this. I just thought, no. Nah, oh, enlisting, yeah. enlisting I just, female I just, power. In I just thought it was, it yeah. was just daft. She's not here to defend herself, <laughs> your wife, Craig. Yeah, I just well, I thought it was daft. three against one. Daft and it's basic. three against one, I'm afraid. I thought it was um, uh, brilliant, and I thought the, exactly the reductive and simplistic quality mm, That's of what it I liked. Made it. It kind of made it. 
as a carer of someone with Alzheimer's, I particularly loved mm. that story, the woman who ate photographs. You know, this this urge to save memories when when because that's what it felt like when mum was diagnosed. It wasn't just that she was losing her memory. The family was losing its collective memory because she was the arbiter of stuff like that. We'd go to her and when when I disagreed with my sisters about something, we'd go to her and to get the definitive version of what happened. And when you lose that, it's just a, a gutting experience. So I, I think that was my favorite one of the four I've seen because I've only watched four. All right, let's get to some music. Skinty Fear, I'm not sure if I have pronounced that correctly, is not only the title of the new Fontaine's DC album, their third, but it's also a mild Gaelic expletive, meaning the damnation of the deer. It is an expression the band's drummer's great auntie used to say. Whilst the last album, 2020's A Hero's Death, got them a Grammy nomination for Best Rock Album, it was also beloved by punk poet John Cooper Clarke. Will Skinty Fear do the same? And more. Here's a clip of the title track, Skinty Fear. Well, I really don't care what you think of me But something gives me to the gravel Every opportunity I've got that jealous stride I probably am that side I see you 20 marries later When your tongue is talking straighter You took a mile down to the mercenary bar I heard she broke up with a fella Now he's drinking in his car Nah, I'm not inclined towards a scandalous word Craig, I'm going to start with you. Is this a dissenting voice again? Are you down with the Fontaines? I love Fontaines, DC. I thought A Hero's Death was the first essential album of the first lockdown. Okay. Not that it was <clears throat> planned that way, but when it came out in May mm-hmm. 20, it was a real... B- Breath of Freedom, actually. And I saw them the other week in Tufnell Park. They played a pre-Brits show in that little place, The Dome, which was sensational. And the new tracks they played from this album that night, notably Jackie Down the Line, was brilliant. I have to say I'm a little bit disappointed with the record. I think they have uh, thrown the baby out the bathwater a little bit. Um, in what sense, then? In, Tell s- us, in really. sense that the kind of rattling punk energy that mm. they had in the first two records mm-hmm. has gone and it's been replaced by something that's, you know, when it's well done and reflective, like The Couple Across the Way, which is just accordion, beautiful vocal mm. from Green, uh, about a warring couple across his flat landing, fantastic. But other tracks like Big Shot and Nabokov, they're just like shoegaze by numbers. And uh, I just feel that moving away from Dublin, scattering, is, is, which is what's happened here. Mm-hmm. They worked in some bougie rural uh, Oxfordshire studio, I think maybe they've lost some of their spark, some of their kind of Dublin energy that really coursed through the first two records. So they're definitely still one of the most exciting young guitar bands we've got. Mm -hmm. And you can't fault their ambition and and their lyrical prowess. But I just think uh, something that was unique about them has been lost. I see. I've read a bit about the making of the album and a lot of it seemed to be the songs coming from jamming sessions, man, rather than sitting down to write a song. So there is a different method. Do you think the different method has changed the way it sounds? Yeah, I think they've just lost energy, basically, and they've lost focus. You know, jamming is the the refuge of scoundrels or stoners. (laughs) Um, A lot of the album appears to be about being an Irish person abroad. It's about the Irish diaspora, and it's also about the difficulty of of finding your tribe or losing your tribe within that. Did you get that sense from the record? 
I got that specifically in the track I Love You. I mean, that is just... That's not about a human, is it? Tell (laughs) us about it. I Love You is this lyrical screed, you know, selling Mm. genocide and half-cut pride. I understand it had to be there from the start. It had to be a flipping man. It was a clamber of life. I sucked the ring off every hand. And I loved you like a penny loves the pocket of a priest. You know, a very jaundiced view of their homeland there. Mm. Uh, Elsewhere, they talk about the Irish baby scandal and all these babies, poor babies that mm-hmm. were buried at the back of uh, in religious institutions. So, no, it's uh, it's not a fond, clear-eyed view of uh, where they, they came from. Obviously, it still means a lot to them. When they mm. promoted A Hero's Death on Jimmy Fallon, they, they filmed it in the old Shillelagh pub in Stoke Newington, mm-hmm. which is a classic little Irish corridor bar. That's when they're at their best, when they're, you know, they're taking the best bits of their homeland. And here, this is a scabrous takedown of, of modern Ireland. But that lyrical bite was sadly lacking musically elsewhere on this record for me. Oh, I see. Now, Will, are you a Fontaine's DC fan? I knew nothing about them and I deliberately then didn't, you know, Google or anything. Mm-hmm. And I listened to it whilst I was doing my ironing. I was getting Cranberries. I was getting the Sundays. I didn't know if they were Irish or not. And then I sort of became a bit more clear. I felt it was an album of two halves. I'm not a fan of the second half being better. I'm not a fan of people repeating verses. And what they did a lot, particularly in the first half, was, and it's lazy songwriting, really, is repeat the first verse, repeat the lyrics. So when, Craig, you're talking about lacking energy and I heard about the jamming sessions, that makes sense to me because I just think, you're not finishing the song properly, you know. And I also wondered if it was literally two producers, maybe, because it felt very dis- disparate in its production. So I preferred the second half. The first half, I really was disappointed. I thought it was lazy, and I couldn't quite understand why. I mean, Green is very much a non-singer singer. He is not trying to hit the high notes. It is somewhere between the fall and is it Sprechsang, the German expression, that that is more important, the poetry. And I think the repetition is this deliberate chant and that anger is coming through that. Does that speak to you? Do you ever support it more? If Mm. you're going to do the repetition, it's got to be supported in the production more. You know, the production still has to move underneath it and it didn't feel like it was doing that. So to me, as a layman, it felt lazy rather than purposed. Now, Alex, they draw a lot from poetry, as said, um, and I think they met because they all like poetry in the original thing. There's no mincing of words here. I did you a favour, I bled myself dry. Well, this is what it is now, pain, pure sky. It's not the happiest of albums. What did you think? I thought it was lyrically very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm delighted I'm not, as usual, the Philistine here who who didn't get a, a sort of masterpiece. I thought lyrically it was incredibly strong. It's the sort of music that's not my cup of tea. And so it's unfair of me to judge it on that basis. I can take it in small doses, but it's not the sort of thing that I would listen to again and again because, to be honest, culturally, that jingy jangy guitar percussion thing is not what floats my boat. I couldn't distinguish it from another 10 bands that do that kind of thing. I, I am also very interested to hear that the previous stuff is much better, and I will look out for Well, it. more three-minute pop um, songs in that but, sense, or indie pop. But I found myself annoyed at the jingy-jangy music 
trying to concentrate on hearing what they were actually saying, which packed quite a lot of energy. So it was like what the words packed a lot of energy and the music was somehow the wrong soundtrack for them. They've got a, a, almost a year-long tour, it looks like, planned, which will be a lot of it, as they say, stateside. Are they going to crack America with this one, do you think? No. Um, <laughs> they've made, they made some good headway on the first yeah. records, uh, but to the extent where they toured so much, it almost broke them, and some of that, the, the, out of that fracturedness is what made the second album so good, mm-hmm. paradoxically. No, I don't see there being any big uh, radio hits, which is obviously crucial in America in particular still. I mean, Jackie Down the Line is probably the most radio-friendly-ish. But no, I I think diehards will stick with them. They're not winning any new fans here or there with this. Okay. I didn't like it on first listen. Then I whacked the headphones on, turned it up, and started to really, really like it. I don't think it's got the hits on it, but actually sonically I was really pleased to hear that wash and that sort of mid-'80s guitar sound. So I thought, you know, maybe they'll get him that one. Will. Will Young, you've got your hand up there. Will at the back. Yeah, at the back. For some reason, but I'm interested in what you guys think. I was thinking of the Concretes with them. Do you know that band? No. Tell Swedish us about them. band, aren't they? Ah. Yeah, they were coming up to me. Yeah. and I feel like I almost like wanted them to take some of that mm. energy, you know, and really go for it. Mm. I mean, it's the third album in a mm. row with Dan Carey. I mean, no disrespect to Mr. Carey. He's, oh, I love Dan Carey. Yeah, he's a great producer. He's done loads of stuff with his, his own label, Speedy Wonderground. But maybe yeah. it's time for a new producer after three mm-hmm. records. We always ask our guests to bring a current favourite tune of theirs. And now it's Will Young's turn. Will Young, what have you brought in for us and why did it butter your crumpet? Did I choose Aeneas? Yes. Yes. She's a, an amazing artist, Aeneas. I don't feel like she's fully, fully broken through yet. She's still in the sort of dazed and confused crowd, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But I really want to see her really go for it. Her latest record's great, and this song, Chew, is fantastic. She, I, I interviewed her, and she's, she's an artist. Her, I hate the word, but journey through life's been really fascinating, and I think she's the real deal. Hard Cell is a comedy series about a women's prison putting on a musical. It is created and written by Catherine Tate, who also plays many of the key parts. It's a sort of sitcom populated by sketch show characters. Let's have a little listen. 82% of women are in prison for non-violent crimes. The justice system is rigged against them. Case in point, what are you in here for? Seven counts of battery and assault. That's a bad example. What about you? Armed robbery. Nope. I had a dispute with an Uber driver. He took the long way round, so I stabbed him in the neck, left him for dead. Just cut this stuff out. I am changing the way women's prisons are run. Creativity, a sense of purpose, self-esteem, the building blocks of rehabilitation. Musicals in prison 
Hell to the yes. As far as I can gather, the main themes are women, prison and violence, so no one's strayed too far out of their comfort zone. I'm a natural-born entertainer. I'm also incredibly violent and singing is my happy place. Oh, that's the spirit. <laughs> I don't want to spook anyone, but I think this could all go to sh First day over, I've just got to keep going and pray for justice. At the end of the day, it's all about communication. Communication and listening. She's now introduced an open door policy. Anyone, anything, anytime. Which is Latin for, I'm dreadfully inept, but please like me. Craig, Catherine Tate is no doubt a remarkable talent, but does her playing all the characters add to the depth of this as a story, or does it detract? I was prepared not to like this, mainly because I couldn't scrub the trailer for the Nan movie from my eyes, <laughs> uh, which looked, which looks absolutely abysmal. You know, I was one of the great characters in the Catherine Tate show from many moons ago, but yeah, that trailer uh, just looked horrifying. It hasn't had any good reviews, no. that film. <laughs> so yeah. um, I was prepared for the worst. I was actually very pleasantly surprised by this. Uh, it is an old school Dick Emery kind of style comedy where one person plays many characters. She's very good at playing the characters. My least favourite was the main one, the governess. Uh, I didn't like the 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 kind of post office filming architecture. If you like, it's still done in that, that mockumentary style that we're all very tired of. Mm, mm. But I thought um, some of the other characters, Big Viv, the hard Scottish one, the Irish one, um, the Marco who came thirty second last thirty second in Love Island, the the, <laughs> the male uh, screw as as his prison parlance was brilliant. So yeah, I find it actually quite charming. There was some. Easy jokes, you know, your contouring's criminal, uh, which she then goes, oh, yeah, it wasn't one of my best lines. So she's having her comedy cake and eating it. But I thought as a, as a knockabout, old-fashioned, ensemble character comedy, it was really good, actually. Is it an ensemble, though, when you're playing all the parts? As an actor, everything in me rebels. Basically, 20 years, <laughs> 20 years hence there will be only Michael Fassbender and uh, uh, Catherine Tate playing every part in every film. I'll take and the Fassbender. rest of us will be unemployed. <laughs> no, you're right. It's, it's an ensemble played by one person, but uh, if anyone's going to do it well, it's her. I mean, does it... It felt a little like it regressed to sort of Eddie Murphy in The Nutty Professor and Mike Myers in Austin Powers, which is the sort of broad comedy that can work and can be really funny. What I didn't know was whether I worried, I watched two episodes and I worried whether the gimmick would sustain me for an entire series. It is basic. And some <laughs> of the repetition, uh, like the, her number two jokes, you know, uh, started to grate mm. a little bit. But there was just something kind of charming and knockabout about it. It, it wasn't mm. trying too hard. Unlike Roar, which was trying too hard and falling short, this set its bar quite low and reached it. Hmm. Um, Will, am I just being a snob? Does it hark back? Does it hark back to Monty Python and Doctor Strangelove as much as it does to Austin Powers? I think it is trying, and I think it's really not very good. And I, I actually had, had watched this. I didn't know I was meant to watch it for this, but I watched <laughs> it anyway. And I only managed two episodes. You know what? I think the problem is that she's really talented and I think that Irish character about the mammy is is actually quite heartbreaking and it's brilliant. Um, mm. But I think they filmed it in the wrong format. So to me, it just seems really indulgent. 
It's like, I'm going to play loads of characters, not just one. And so do it in a much dirtier way. Don't film it in that kind of thing where it's sort of meant to be a mockumentary, but is it or isn't it? You know, the the grading of it, the choice of of how they've chosen to colour it doesn't really work. I think her playing all the characters actually is doing her a disservice as an, as an actor because she is a brilliant actor. But it makes me think this is just a sort of bit of a sort of glorified real for you and yeah, um, yeah. don't need to do that you really don't need to do that you know yeah i i think i mean on reflection hearing what you're saying i think the same thing was true for me it it sort of fell between two stalls it i didn't know whether they were, they were trying to actually tell a story or whether it was a, a vehicle for Catherine tate and at times it felt it couldn't be both they sacrificed one for the other. Sean, in the spirit of celebrating female achievement um, in the field, should projects like this be encouraged? I mean, is there anything wrong with being broad-brushed but popular? Millions tune in every week or used to tune in every week to watch Miranda or Mrs. Brown boys. They're not my cup of tea, but they're clearly someone's. I think you've asked me the most difficult question anyone's ever asked me. Because <laughs> I'm going to sound really mean here. Um, I can't stand Miranda or Mrs. Brown's boys. I just don't like them. I don't know, lots of people do. I just don't. I didn't like this. I think it's great that a woman's in it, but I don't think that should be the selling point. The main thing is I didn't find it funny. I think people have picked up on the Roz character, and she was my favourite character, the Irish firebrand but with this mother complex now had they just dealt with something about her and she'd been more central to it rather than it being gag gag this kind of all the fun of the fair of everyone else then you might have had something in it because I think she's brilliant and there is a point what I found really interesting the way she plays it she's really studied how to play that character and there's a point where she's talking to camera the Roz character and she doesn't smile she does that thing where some people don't do the people pleasing stuff and she doesn't smile and she says all this really odd stuff and Joe without almost any look on her face anything but I've had a really difficult time and I thought that's the one that's the one I'm really really interested in that that she's picked up on something really really good and the rest is just really crap gags I do think it's a shame maybe she's got a massive Netflix deal and maybe this is the first of many or something like that but it, it just falls a bit flat and I think Catherine Tate is really good, but it's n- it's not the thing for her. And maybe you're right; it's not a sitcom, and it's not a vehicle for her. It's sort of something in between that therefore doesn't really work. But obviously, it interested in us, and we would watch it anyway to try it out. I did two episodes too, but I don't know if I would definitely do more. Finally, regular listeners know we always ask our guests to bring in a favourite song of all time. It's a really difficult decision, but we always ask you to do it. Will, what have you chosen? <laughs> okay, well, it's Tracy Chapman, Fast Car. Because that whole album is one of the best albums ever written, in my opinion, and it's this stands the test of time. It's heartbreaking. It makes it get it as soon as the song starts. I feel a lump in my throat, and I'm engaged in the story, and it's never changed in the thirty years or however long mm. since mm. I first heard it. Yeah, perfect. Craig, what have you chosen? I've chosen Cuyahoga by R.E.M. from Lacerich Pageant. Mm -hmm. I've always loved that album and I love that song. I was prompted to think about it because I got this new track 
with my, uh, by Mickey Blanco, which features Michael Stipe. And Stipe literally phoned it, well, zoomed it in, actually, his vocal. Another wasted moment for the post-REM legend. <laughs> and it reminded me how great they were uh, in 1986, mm-hmm. their breakthrough album, Life Rich Pageant. This is an environmental song before environmental songs were voguish. Uh, it was about the Cuyahoga River in Ohio, which caught fire. It was so polluted in the wow. I think, early 80s. And yeah. it's a beautiful song about a terrible thing. Good choice. The tunes will be on our rolling playlist, which is on <clears throat> Spotify, but it's also on Tidal too, which hopefully pays people more money. And with that, it's the end of the podcast and it's closing time chatter. What will we be discussing as we drain the last drops of lager and stagger home, delighted that we're not in a bloody women's prison, in my view. Craig, what's your closing time chatter? I went to see Douglas Stewart in conversation last night with the poet Andrew McMillan and oh, okay. uh, his his novel, uh, second novel, Young Mungo, comes out mm. today or tomorrow. Uh, today, actually. Uh, and it's as heartbreaking and brilliant as Shuggy Bane was. And I think if anyone's not read Shuggy Bane, they need to put down their phone and go to the <laughs> shops right now and buy a copy of Shuggy Bane and then buy Young Mungo. This guy is a legendary author and it's so good to see someone of at the age of 45, becoming a literary lion. And apparently a lovely, lovely man. Lovely man. That's all I hear. Will, we probably didn't ask you for your closing time chatter because we probably forgot. Uh, it's usually just a talking point of the week. Talk, oh, talking point? Yeah. It's my tulips. I call them the, the jewels of spring. <laughs> what <laughs> colour are your jewels of spring, Will Young? Well, they're everything from an apricot to a a, a deep purple. And if you don't grow tulips i would highly recommend it for next year do you sing to your plants i talk to them okay what do you say hurry up <laughs> <laughs> hurry up and bloom damn it i've just i've just uh, planted all my tomatoes for the coming summer they're in a little seedling tray and they just started to rear their head and and poke up which is always a moment of joy um my closing time chatter is a blast from the past it's dinner ladies with my other half we've made a rule to sort of turn the tv off slightly before we go to sleep Mm -hmm. we always have a half hour thing that we watch to wind down so that we're not watching some very exciting you know, uh, Marvel film or something just before we go so to So this bed. is the Ovaltine and, of TV, is it? Yes, and Dinner Ladies is on BBC iPlayer and we've just finished the two series that were made. And it is just the most delightful, astonishing, well-written. I mean, Victoria Wood is a fucking genius. Some of the writing in there is you, ha- you get bigot characters, you know, daily male reader racists that are written so sympathetically that you absolutely understand them and want to hug them and educate them. And 20-odd years on, Mm -hmm. it still holds up. Mm -hmm. There's still, you know, not a a single joke that seems crass or... She just writes with so much love for the human condition that you can't help but fall in love with every single person she's created, including the incidental people that just come into the canteen to ask for toast once, mm, once mm. a week. So yeah, they're all crafted, aren't they? It's an astonishing achievement. Mm. It's an astonishing piece of writing, and I would highly recommend it. That's a really, really good tip, actually. What, what about yours, Victoria Wood. Sean? Well, mine is that um, there's an unbelievable amount of people who skip the credits 
on Netflix and other streaming services. So when you've got something like Succession, you know it now has that option. It's like 136 million people do it. My facts may be wrong because <laughs> I haven't got my glasses on. Um, but it's more than 136. And the composers are getting really pissed off. So Nicholas Brattel, who has obviously written the best theme tune in the last the decade, probably. I mean, just time. absolutely fantastic for Succession. It's just like... Yes, but this is part of the actual narrative of it. The music is integral to this, and this is what sets up, and this is what, you know, my influences were. This is what I want to do. <laughs> I tell my wife not to do it, is what he says. But there are a few people who are now getting really, really annoyed that this is an option. <laughs> I also think it's interesting that some of the streaming services, you know when you put your mouse down the chronological dial, yeah. you know, when you go to the middle or the end, some of them will let you see the scenes and some don't, because seeing the scenes really, really ruins it as well. And doing twice the speed. I do think yes. that is there not the movement for slower television? Can we not have buttons that make us do this? Because I'm nice and analogue and I don't want them. Streaming services should be also more careful about which frame they choose for episodes. Because when you're watching something like a series of Bake Off that you haven't seen, well, seeing the last frame with the two, you know, the two finalists rather fucking ruins it. So stop doing that. <laughs> and that's the end of the podcast. Thanks so much to the exceptional Will Young and the mighty Craig McLean for joining us on The Culture Bunker. It's been wonderful. Remember, you can get all the tunes on our rolling playlist. The link is at the top of the show notes. From myself and Sean and producers Alex Reese, Yelena Sofronievich and Alina Ganatra, Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. The Culture Bunker was produced and presented by Sean Pattenden and Alex Andreev. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The producer was Yanos Sofronievich, with assistant production by Alina Ganatra, and was edited by me, Alex Reese. It's Easter holidays, so I think I better leave right now. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters production.